from Luminary and Built It Productions. It's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Ryan Holiday, author of The Obstacle is the Way, the timeless art of turning trials into triumph. My wife, she likes to joke that uh, one of us is stoic and the other writes about stoicism. She's sort of naturally uh, most of these things, and I think part of the reason I can write about them effectively um, is that they are not natural, and I am constantly trying to get to the place that I'm writing about. How Ryan Holiday went from marketer to one of America's best-selling authors and one of his generation's most influential thinkers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Holiday has done more to popularize ancient philosophy than almost anyone else alive. The many rappers, NFL quarterbacks, corporate CEOs, and entrepreneurs who quote from Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus were first introduced to those Stoic philosophers through Ryan's books. Books like The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and Stillness is the Key. But what's remarkable about Ryan is that his work isn't just popular. It's also widely respected by scholars and historians, in part because Ryan does the work. Over nearly two decades, he's devoured nearly everything written by the ancients. And what he discovered at the age of 18, when he first read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, is that although it was written 2,000 years ago, it's probably one of the greatest self-help books of all time, and certainly one of the most profound. Ryan is not an academic. In fact, he didn't even finish college. What he is, though, is an autodidact. He reads widely, and he reads a lot, up to eight hours a day, so much so that he actually owns a bookstore in Bastrop, Texas. As a high school student in Sacramento, California, Ryan says he was sort of average, but from an early age, he loved to read. My dad had taken me to a used bookstore, and, and I bought a bunch of Louis L'Amour novels because they, they looked cool on the, on the cover. And I remember I sort of fell in love with these books, and I would read them all the time. And I remember in fourth grade, my teacher caught me reading one, like, under the desk instead of whatever we were supposed to be reading in school. And 
I remember her being surprised, not that I was doing it, but that I could be reading this book. Ryan ended up attending UC Riverside in Southern California. And while in college, he joined the student newspaper and landed an assignment where he got to meet Dr. Drew, the famous relationship doctor Ryan had grown up listening to on the radio. And their conversation would end up being, well, almost apocryphal. So I was writing for the college newspaper and uh, someone from Trojan Condoms reached out. They were putting on a conference in Los Angeles and they were asking different college journalists nearby to attend. <laughs> and uh, I had grown up listening to Love Line. Mm -hmm. And I remembered someone had called in and asked Dr. Drew for a book recommendation. And I was like, oh, well, if I ever met him, I would do the same thing. And then there I was in the same room as him. And I and I asked, and he recommended Epictetus, mm -hmm. and I went on Amazon and I bought it, but then also Marcus Aurelius was recommended by Amazon, and I'd at least heard of Marcus right. Aurelius. I, you know, like, uh, this was, I don't know, 2006, so Gladiator then is only a few-year-old movie, um, and so I was like, oh, I've, I've heard of that person. So mm. I started with, with Marcus Aurelius. And Marcus Aurelius, who's known for meditations, which which you ordered at the time, and did, did it did it just strike you like almost immediately? Like did it just speak to you in a way that you just didn't couldn't explain or, or or didn't anticipate? I think it hit me on two levels. So one is the advice itself, and then also as someone who had wanted to be a writer and, and loved reading, there is something in meditations that's really you don't see in any other book ever published, in that. Marcus is writing for himself. He, he doesn't think that his grandfather or his father, both I believe were deceased as he's writing it, would ever see it. Nor did he think that this was even something that, you know, me 2000 years later would be reading. Marcus is writing the debts and lessons to remind himself about what he thinks he should be doing or thinking about. And I think was perfectly timed for where I was in my own development, because it's not preachy, it's not condescending, it's not, you know, what someone wants to be true. It's really, you're observing interior dialogue with not an academic, not the college professor that I, you know, had to go to class and listen to, but someone under unimaginable stress and difficulty doing like a really hard job. I just, I think I just loved like every part of it. What were some of the things that you read in that book that you then began to, to wonder how to apply to your own life? So he says, you know, when you uh, wake up in the morning, tell yourself the people I will deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly. They are like this because they can't, he goes on and on, but he's basically preparing for a rough day, mm -hmm. right? And how he wants to be who he wants to be despite all the things that the world can throw at him. Marcus is just talking about like how you get through putting up with people's crap. You know, I, I think mm -hmm. there was there was a sort of an accessibility that I liked. But I also remember there's this great opening passage. I remember typing up and putting on my wall in my apartment 
Um, Marcus opens book five. He says, at dawn, when you have trouble getting out of bed, tell yourself, I have to go to work as a human being. You know, what do I have to complain of? Blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, but it's nicer here. And he says, but are you born to feel nice? You know, instead of doing things, he says, you know, what about the birds and the plants and the bees and the spiders? He says, they're all doing their job. Why aren't you doing your job? And I think, again, it was, okay, this is, this is philosophy, but it's like a guy trying to convince himself why he has to get out of bed in the morning and do what he's meant to do. He's talking to himself, but it's so specific that it's actually universal at the same time. So I, I think I think I really was hit by all of that. It, I wonder if at that time, because you really, you know, and, and, and this happens in college, right? Like you find something that you're passionate about and you become really interested in and you embrace it and it becomes something that you really um, just consume and absorb. And sometimes um, if we're lucky, we keep those things with us for the rest of our mm -hmm. lives. And sometimes we, we, we leave them behind. But you didn't at that moment, it seems like you discovered these things, but you didn't and you couldn't have really thought this is going to be the thing I'm going to do in my life. It was more about something that just spoke to you personally, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think it would have been preposterous to be like, I'm going to be a <laughs> philosopher like this. But I, I think it was an introduction to a whole world of characters and ideas and ways of thinking about the world that, you know, I was just totally unfamiliar with. And in retrospect, I clearly gravitated towards the parts of Stoicism that were about resiliency and productivity and, you know, um, putting up with things you didn't like, actually integrating it into who I was as a person, as opposed to sort of a tool and a toolkit for being successful in life. That was a, a part that came later. But I was just really interested in, in like, oh, philosophy is real and can be used by real people in what they do. Just, just, just down to the fact that, you know, I met Dr. Drew, this guy I'd heard on the radio growing mm. up, and he's reading philosophy like in his spare time. I, I think, I, again, it was just a, it's a different angle on it. And, and I, I found it a much better entry point than anything else that I've gotten. So I guess while you were in college, you you sort of I, I think it sounds like maybe initially you thought of becoming a journalist. Is that fair? I think so. I think I knew that I loved writing and I loved that sort of world and I wanted to be a part of it. And I, I quickly got sort of sucked into the marketing side of it. Um, that I was reading interesting people doing this is as blogs are sort of just coming into the their place in the sort of cultural conversation. And they didn't seem to like work for a specific newspaper or a specific outlet. They just said what they thought. They just like had, they had an audience and they could explore and talk about anything they wanted to talk about. And I think I was attracted to that. So one of those people, um, I guess it was a guy named Tucker Max, who, who, who blogged about his life and his kind of frat-like adventures. Yes. I mean, he... I think he sort of popularized that that frat tire genre um, with his website, and and somehow 
you got connected with him, like do, doing a little work for him. What, what what's the story there? I did. Yeah, I was. I basically was his research assistant. He was a person who he would write these sort of stories about drinking and hooking up uh, on this website, which became a a book that sold millions of copies. He was sort of one of the first mm. kind of internet personalities that broke through the cultural mainstream and uh, our sort of lives and attractions could not be more different. You know, I, I wasn't into that scene. I've never been a drinker. I don't have stories like that, but I was interested in what he had built. Yeah. Um, that he was sort of his own person. And through um, Tucker, I met another writer named Robert Green, who, who mm -hmm. was, was much more integral into shaping you know, sort of who I became as a writer. And, and Robert, um, of course, many people know he wrote uh, The 48 Laws of Power, which um, which you mentioned having a, a big impact on, on your life. And I've yeah. read the book and it's parts of it can be shocking, right? For, yes. Especially for people who think that, you know, who think what what especially especially for people who who kind of think that there's a right way of doing things in a wrong way or behaving in a certain way, like. Um, it's parts of it are, you know, sort of surprising. Um, can you just explain how you initially read that book and what you got from it? So I love that book on two levels. As a self-taught person, like as a person who didn't study the classics the way that Robert did, um, if you have no exposure to this world whatsoever, what the 48 Laws of Power really is, is like all of the great thinkers of power and strategy and history, all the big movers of, you know, 5,000 years of human history are all in here from the Odyssey to Sun Tzu to Machiavelli to Aesop's Fables. It's like a greatest hits album of all of the big ideas and the big moments of history. So I loved that sense. I remember the main thing I was doing in that book was circling things that I'd never heard of that I wanted to go read. It was like a Rosetta Stone of all these other things. Um, but the, the level you're talking about where people read it and they're like, this is horrifying. How could you enjoy this book? I mean, the first law is um, crush your enemy totally. Yeah. And I think it's important, and I, I can say this confidently having now known Robert for 15 years, um, Robert is not saying you should do this. He's saying, this is historically how powerful and powerless people have interacted with each other, right? Mm. So there, there's always historically been kind of a double meaning behind a lot of these seemingly ruthless books. But the distinction in Robert's books is between immoral and amoral. Mm. And, and I went on and I worked in Hollywood and then I worked in fashion and then now in publishing. I've yet to find any of the laws in Robert's books that completely did not jive with my experience, right? So it's not, hmm. it's not that I would, um, here's a great example, as, as I went on and being, to be Robert's research assistant. One of the laws is never outshine the master, yeah. which is that you have a mentor, someone who sees promise in you. When you're young and naive, you, you could easily mistake this person as, oh, they're like a, a second father to me. But I think Robert's point is like, very rarely are people acting out of, pure altruism. And there's always an agenda. And there's always ego at play. And if you are naive about that or ignorant about that, you may end up unintentionally 
sabotaging or cutting short this relationship because you're not aware of the sort of unpleasant or hidden forces that operate in between humans and in power dynamics and so on and so forth. So I guess all of which is to say, I've continually found Robert to be one of the kindest, upstanding, <laughs> generous, and selfless people I've ever met. I feel somewhat uniquely qualified to say the book is about, in the way that gravity is amoral and mm. indifferent, so are the laws of, of power. So you mentioned that you did end up being Robert Greene's research assistant and getting a job at this talent agency, and you dropped out of college. I did because you were like, "Well, there are all these opportunities out there, and and why don't I just you know start my life?" Um, but you eventually landed at American Apparel doing marketing there, and and you would go on to spend, I guess, like six years working with American Apparel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you are put in charge of PR. Yeah. Um, which is a huge responsibility. I mean, because you were super young. You were like, what, 21, 22? Yeah. And in, in retrospect, it, it's absurd. <laughs> and that was very common in American Broadway. Mm. There was always these woefully unqualified people being given, you know, the keys to the Ferrari. And for a lot of people, they crashed and burned. But if you did have skills, um, you could do something. And so I, 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 I was... They threw me in the deep end and I didn't sink. Yeah. I remember, though, the first time I walked into American Apparel, I just met Doug Charney, who was the founder. Yeah. And he's like, I want to hire you, but like, just come see me at the factory. And and I, I drove to downtown Los Angeles. You walk in the factory. It's this huge airplane hangar of a building. And I remember walking down one of the hallways of the sewing corridors and like hundreds of garment workers like stand up and begin shouting and cheering and clapping like they were they broke into a spontaneous standing ovation for this guy who'd made this thing exist out of nothing and so again i, I was attracted to the excitement of it and on the marketing side it was like i remember just feeling like how do you translate that energy into like social media and blogs and and all of that you know, it's so interesting because he was, I mean, thinking about like the ethical profile of that company, um, you know, the, the fair wages and, and the organic materials. I mean, it was a really hot company, right? But but at the same time, there were there were serious sexual harassment allegations against Dove Charney and, and the, the board eventually ousted him. And then and then American Apparel went bankrupt. D- did you did you have insights into that pretty early on? Was it was it? pretty clear to you then that that there were management issues? I think it's a, it was a lot of things. I mean, you, you this goes back to the, the work in Robert Greene, which is that people are really complicated, right? And that, that like good people can be very compartmentalized. And I think with Dove, there was a lot of compartments, some of them much darker than others. But also as I've gotten distance from, because I was so, I, I was not just like excited to work there, but like enamored and a true believer. I mean, again, you're 20 years old and you're, you've never met someone who owns their own company. And here you, you're watching the owner of a company with 12,000 employees get standing ovations yeah. in, the, in the halls of an 800,000 square foot building. I mean, it was surreal. But with distance, as I was able to sort of detox and deprogram from all of it, is that that's probably why he hired a 20-year-old in the first place. 
right? Like yeah. I myself now would never hire me to be in charge of anything <laughs> at that age. And so the idea, what was in that for him, again, it's not altruism, right? This is what I, you learned from the 48 laws of power. It's not altruism. It was, it was inherently exploitative. As good as it was for me, it was also profoundly exploitative. So there he was, a super young man made director of marketing at this hot company, American Apparel. And Ryan totally figured out how to get lots of media attention for the company by fabricating stories that would go viral. He essentially learned how to manipulate the voracious need for digital content to benefit the brand. And these tactics, some of which have been criticized, became his first book. You released your first book while you were still there. Mm-hmm. Trust me, I'm lying. Confessions of a Media Manipulator. And it talks about sort of some of the guerrilla campaigns that you were part of or pulled off to promote, you know, different books and, and um, films and obviously American Apparel. It was there was I remember when it came out. I think it came out in 2012 and there was a lot of buzz around it. Um, and lots of people didn't like you or, you know, didn't like how you came across. But it strikes me that you, in some ways, wrote that book as a confessional to kind of expose yourself. I don't know, almost like you wanted to just put yourself out there and say, this is who who I, I am or was or what I did. And, you know, here you go. Well, I wanted to be a writer. And I had grown increasingly disenchanted with the world that I was seeing. So, there's this strange experience you have if you are ever the subject of a lot of news attention mm-hmm. or party to a lot of news attention, which is that you get to see how the sausage gets made and it's not very attractive and can be deeply disillusioning if you think that media is important. And so watching this happen with a bunch of controversial figures who were by no means innocent or perfect, that, that that wasn't the intention of the book. But it was to say, like, if I can whip up a controversy over nothing and get front page news attention all over the world for some Internet blogger, what do you think like an actual maliciously or malignantly uh, intentioned person might be able to pull off. That that was sort of the seed of that book. I don't know mm-hmm. how close I came to fully expressing that, but that was where I was coming from. And I remember I remember thinking um like I have to get this book out right away hmm. or it won't be relevant. And sort of in retrospect it was probably several years early, but all all the things that we watch now how sort of fake news gets made, not in the Trump sense, but in the, ironically, in the sense of how the sort of Trump machine creates narratives and ideas from uh, untruth. Um, I was writing about how all of that happened, Mm. you know, in 2012. And a, a lot of people told me I was not only wrong, but like a really awful person for saying it. Um, People at the time also said, like, you know, he's just writing this to get rich. And and in retrospect, um, also quite silly, because if I'd wanted to, I could I would if I decided to continue to go down that direction, it would have been quite lucrative. Mm. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. When you released The Obstacle is the Way, which came out two years after Trust Me, I'm Lying, all of a sudden it's this book which is about the philosophical teachings of, of Stoicism and designed to be made accessible to anyone. Um, this was you, – you had been reading this material now at this point since you were first introduced to it in college and this was presumably a huge part of your life, but your public persona was that previous book as this media manipulator. When The Obstacle is the Way came out, initially, how did people respond to it? Did people say, "Who, who is this the same guy? Like, what's, what is going on? Yeah, we, we said people are complicated. I think <laughs> so when, when Trust Me, I'm Lying came out in 2012, you know, the people who had known me for my writing were thinking like, what is this? You know, this is who you are. So there was like a little bit of that. And then then the book came out and did well. And I was much more well known for the marketing stuff. And I surprised my publisher shortly after Trust Me, I'm Lying came out with the proposal for what became The Obstacle is the Way. And I they were sort of like, I think they offered me half, less than half what I got for Trust Me, I'm Lying for the obstacle is the way. So they weren't particularly excited about it. And then when it came out, people were like, what is this sudden transition? <laughs> to me, it was more like the other thing had been a detour, you know? So it was, it was, um, we make up these narratives after the fact, but at this, at the time I was really sort of pursuing all these things simultaneously. Did you think of the obstacle is the way as an opportunity to 
make accessible what many people would have seen as inaccessible? Yes, I loved Stoicism and I, you know, I read them in the original. But when I would try to explain it to people, I felt like it wasn't quite resonating. And then when I read the books about Stoicism, I was usually disappointed. And so I, I felt like there was this opportunity. What I so love about Robert's writing is that he doesn't, you know, the old uh, piece of writing advice, show, don't tell. Mm. Um, Robert tells stories, uh, like he illustrates ideas in story. And I didn't understand, uh, it wasn't quite where I started, but where I quickly dialed in on the obstacles the way is, is that the vast majority of people are not interested in philosophical ideas. They're interested in philosophical lessons. And I really love old books that are illustrate ideas with stories. So that was the idea that I could popularize some of the ideas in Stoic philosophy in a very accessible, memorable form. By drawing on biographies, right? Like Theodore yeah. Roosevelt and Thomas Edison and even Barack Obama and and, and obviously Marcus Aurelius, um, talking about how these principles uh, sort of apply to, to things that these people experienced. Yes. So, so yeah, Ulysses S. Grant is a character in The Obstacles Away. He probably never read, uh, I've looked because I'm such a fan of his, but, but probably never read a single word of any of the Stoics. Hmm. But at certain moments in his life, perfectly illustrated this Stoic idea or that Stoic idea. So that was something also people would miss about the book. They'd be like, why is John D. Rockefeller in the book? He's a terrible person. Right. It's like for the same reason that Seneca tells stories about Alexander the Great. Um, not that that Alexander the Great is perfect, but in this instant, he illustrates an idea. And more importantly, people have heard of Alexander the Great. So it becomes a vehicle for connecting about an idea. And that that's sort of the format that I fell into for the book. What what were you trying to explain to people about our emotions? Or or what is it about our emotions that that you realized we don't understand after you started to read the Stoics? Like kind of like the Buddhists, the Stoics practice the idea of not suppressing the emotions, but that that you are not your emotions, that you have the ability to question, to evaluate, to not act on an emotional impulse. Hmm. You know, the book is basically split into the three disciplines of Stoicism. The discipline of perception is like how we choose to see things. The ability to sort of stop and pause and go, why am I feeling this? What is it? Is this true? Or is this something I'm making up about what I'm experiencing? Yeah. Uh, Epictetus says it's not things that upset us, it's our judgment about things. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you have your immediate emotional reaction and then you have the ability, if you train it, to decide what you're actually going to do. Mm. The feeling exists inside you. The action, that's the choice. Why do you think it is so hard for us to remove ourselves from, sort of metaphorically, to remove ourselves from a situation in which we are the main actor, right? In other words... We seek advice from others about our challenges and conflicts because we can't see them clearly ourselves. Sure. 
But the Stoics basically sort of argue that you should figure out how to do that, right? That you should figure out how to kind of remove yourself as the central actor. But how, how do you do that? Yeah, the, the ability to, to, to see yourself or your situation with distance, that's like the main thing. And, and you can imagine that, you know, Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome, literally worshipped as a god in his own life, would, would have struggled with this immensely. You know, how do you see yourself objectively when everyone's telling you you're awful or everyone's telling you that you're the greatest, you know, most infallible human that ever lived because they want something out of you? It, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult. I think part of what meditations is, is him having that honest conversation with himself in the private pages of of his diary. In the modern world, it's extraordinarily difficult because we're so much busier and, and really brilliant minds. People you've talked to on your podcast a million times have developed all sorts of very sneaky, very addictive tools and activities to uh, make sure we never have a moment of that downtime to do that kind of reflection. There's so much about what you write in in this book and and then your your subsequent books that um, align with like Buddhist philosophy too, right? Like like totally. the idea of present, the present moment. It's amazing that 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 is both an you know so so central to both Eastern and Western philosophy. And certainly when when we talk about Stoicism, um, everybody who's heard this idea knows it makes sense. You focus on this moment now. You are present now. But our minds play tricks on us, mm-hmm. and our minds often wander and think about the future. And it's it's also, I think, a normal thing for us to do because we, as a species that has survived this long, we we have to plan. How do you maintain that notion of presence? I mean, for for me, in presence, I think it's 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 a, it's a handful of things. It's the elimination of things that don't make you present. So, you know, like what's your relationship with devices? What's your relationship with how you consume information? What do you allow into your life? A big part of it for me is routine. So, you know, if I can be present and disciplined at the beginning of the day when it's easier, um, if I can do it in bursts up front before, you know, stuff has popped up, then there's less pressure on the the rest of the day. And it also makes it easier for me to say, be present with my family or my kids or, you know, taking a walk outside because I'm, I'm ahead. You know, I'm not feeling like I'm constantly behind and I need to be elsewhere and I can't be what I'm doing right now. You know, it, it's it's funny because I've talked about things that I do or practices that I keep. And there are moments in my life, many moments where I feel like I'm failing at those practices or not not being disciplined about doing those things. And then and then I feel bad about it. Or, you know, I, I start to feel like an imposter. I'm, and I, I know it's all perception, right? Um, but I, you know, I'll feel like I'll feel chaotic, like my life is in shambles. But But people 
have this perception who know me that my life is in perfect balance, right? And I yes. and I see videos of you being so disciplined, you know, waking up early and journaling, and I and I feel envious of your discipline. <laughs> I'm and I'm wondering, are there moments where when when you feel like an imposter or you beat yourself up for not completing a task or feeling like like you've fallen short on your practice? Of course. No, so my wife who I met like probably three months after I read Meditations for the first time. And we've been together ever since. So she was there when I worked in Hollywood. She was there when I dropped out of college. She was there in American Apparel. She's, you know, there for all the books. She likes to joke that uh, one of us is stoic and the other writes about stoicism, <laughs> which is, which is, I think, to a certain degree, true. So interesting. So interesting. Yeah. yeah. She's sort of naturally uh, most of these things mm -hmm. and... I think part of the reason I can write about them effectively is that they are not natural and I am constantly trying to get to the place that I'm writing about. Mm. So I think, I think it is a struggle and part of what gravitates us to study and explore something is that it is kind of foreign to us and that we want it more. But there's even a passage in Meditations where he says, you know, don't despair that your days aren't packed with wiser moral actions, but, you know, he's just like, pick yourself back up when you fail. Mm. Try not to lose the rhythm more than you can help it and sort of do the best that you can. So the routine that I have that I talk about, it's largely true. And I certainly keep it far more often than I don't keep it. But I fall short all the time. I, I say in The Obstacles of the Way that all this stuff is simple but not easy. And I think mm. that encapsulates a lot of these ideas, whether it's I mean, meditation is extraordinarily simple and straightforward. But why can't we do it? Yeah, it's because yeah. it's so hard. So one of the principles of Stoicism is that you cannot control everything or even most things around you. But what you can control, of course, is how you react, which can be challenging, especially in a crisis. Ryan, as a parent, my patience can often be tested by my otherwise amazing children, right? And occasionally I find myself having a hard time not reacting like angrily to something they do, which I always feel bad about. But it's one of those parental challenges, you know? Well, if you think that's hard, one of the most, I think, compelling and impossible exercises in Epictetus that Marcus Aurelius uh, also repeats in Meditations is Epictetus says, as you tuck your children in at night, say to yourself that they are mortal and they will not live through the morning. Oh, God. <laughs> Which, you know, reading at 20, I go... Oh, that's so interesting, yeah. you know, or whatever. And then then you have a kid and you're like, what are you talking about? And then reading, uh, as I was writing about Marcus in my book, Lives of the Stoics, that Marcus lost six children in infancy. Mm. He had, I think, 12, 11 or 12 children and only a handful survived to adulthood. I mean, so what is that actually, what, what is the purpose of that? How is, is that, is that in some insane philosophical torture? Or what is the purpose? What I realized is that the exercise is not to prepare yourself for the death of your child so that you don't have any emotions about it. It's to remind yourself that rushing through bedtime to check your email is really stupid. Mm. 
and that the purpose of meditating on mortality is not to not be sad if somebody dies, but to not take the time that you have with that person now for granted. So I, I don't think that the Stoics were above emotion. I think they knew that these things were real and that they happened. I think they were developing these strategies as a way of anticipating some of the biases or the shortcuts or, you know, excuses that we make for things. And it's designed to sort of counteract that. Mm. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's about getting to a place of emotionlessness. I think it's perhaps getting to a place where you don't make rash, destructive mm. decisions out of the emotions. Sure. But uh, yeah, anyways, I, I, I do think about that a lot. There's nothing, I, I, I think the once I had kids, it was the first time that I understood that for the rest of my life, I would always be worried about them in some capacity about mm -hmm. their safety. And and I, I had this conversation with my mother recently who's 75 and said it never ends. I mean, I'm a, a, a middle-aged man with my own children and my mom still says, yeah, you, you're always, there's that connection to your kid that, you know, never goes away in that sense. I heard someone describe being a parent as having your heart outside of your body. Mm. But then realizing that that same, that, so... You know, is there some extreme where someone tries to shut themselves off so they don't feel it, so they don't worry? Yes. And then are there also parents who are crippled with worry, who cause pain to themselves and their child because they are so focused on what they don't control? I, I think, you know, when you turn on the news and it's, you know, uh, an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, or you turn on the news, or it's a pandemic that's killing hundreds of thousands of people, and you know your stock market portfolio has fallen by half. You know there is this instant. You know you can despair, you can get angry, and the Stoics would would say, "Is that affecting what's happening in any way?" No, that doesn't mean you're indifferent to what happens in the world. The Stoics would just say. Okay, but what can you do about it? I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. The, the county that I live is 40% vaccinated, hmm. which is horrendous, hmm. right? And so what, what can I do as an individual about that? Obviously, I can get myself vaccinated. I can talk to friends and family about it. But the Stoics, this is, I think, again, there's this big misconception that the Stoics are resigned to things that are outside their control. Mm -hmm. I think the Stoics accept what's outside of their control as facts and then try to use said facts. So it's like, okay, how could I participate? How could I use my platform in some way? But then how could I use my actual body? How could I contribute to, somebody is trying to change that number, right? So what? how could I be a help to that, right? So Marcus Aurelius talks about how when you're despair at all the evil that's happening in the world, he says, if you want to see good, go do good, right? So I, I love the practicality of stoicism of like, Okay, yeah, I, it's totally outside my control that this group or that group is doing this or that bad thing. But what am I doing that's counteracting that in my own small way? And can I not find relief and inspiration in that? I think all great writers who write books like you write are essentially trying to solve 
problems and, and challenges that they have, and they're trying to answer questions that, that they have, right? Sure. Um, and so, um, like your books, I imagine they're written for you, right? Because totally. you you need these lessons. And and I, you know, I wrote my book in the same way because I needed to understand what it was about business and how to run businesses that I didn't understand. And still don't understand and still kind of make mistakes. I make many, many mistakes that I talk about in the book. Uh, the book is designed as a uh, as a series of, of, of solutions to mistakes, and I still make those mistakes. But there's something um, that I, you've written about and have talked about, and it's how to just kind of – and it's very much comes from Marcus Aurelius, and it's this idea of uh, – and it's connected to how you respond. And I think it's something literally where he, where he says, be cheerful. In, in all situations, even... Oh, even. the idea of amor fati? Yes. Yes. It actually comes to us from Nietzsche, uh, who didn't like the Stoics, but ironically expressed <laughs> perfect Stoic idea. Uh -huh. Amor fati just means a love of fate. Mm -hmm. And the idea of amor fati is really an embracing of what is outside your control. Marcus Aurelius says, um, whatever you throw in front of or on top of a fire, a fire turns into flame and brightness. Um, and I think that's such a beautiful image. You know, he's, he wrote that during the Antonine Plague. Even the historians of his day sort of shook their heads at the sadness of the fact that, like, probably the most qualified and fundamentally decent and intelligent person to ever ascend to the imperial purple, hmm. uh, to be the emperor of Rome, is met with the worst luck you can imagine. The Tiber River floods, the, the borders are invaded multiple times, the Antonine Plague hits, uh, which lasts for 15 years and ultimately kills Marcus, uh, we, we believe. But Marcus writes, it's not unfortunate that this happened. It's fortunate that it happened to me. And to me, that's the essence of the idea of Amor Fati, that uh, sure, you probably have chosen for it to be otherwise, but it's not. And so how can you see it as inherently a gift? Um, to me, that's the sort of transcendent level of, of stoicism that maybe you reach only for a few fleeting moments. Do you ever find yourself reacting to something negatively and then saying to yourself, why did I do that when I know that I can control my reactions. Literally every day. <laughs> Multiple times a day, yeah. of course. Yeah. yeah. I think it's about, I just think about how I would have reacted to that 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Probably similarly, but to a much greater degree. You know what I mean? So for me, it's, it's not this idea that you understand this stuff and you suddenly become perfect. It's just in the way that you would in sports or business, that you develop kind of an acumen or a skill that allows you to handle each thing a little bit better than how you might have handled it the first go around. Hmm. Uh, Dan Gilbert, the, the Harvard psychologist, has written about how our personalities really change um, quite a bit every sort of decade. Our value systems generally stay the same. But our personalities are quite different. Like I, I feel like I'm quite a different person to the one I was when I was 18 and 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 28, and you know, than to the person I am now. But I wonder, 
you know, based on your reading of the Stoics, right, and all the wisdom that you've gathered from those writings, how much power do you think we have over changing who we are? And how much of who we are do you think is wired? Yeah. Uh, it's probably, let's say we knew the answer. Almost certainly you would want people to believe and act as if mm. they can change. Right? So to some degree, I don't, I don't want to think about it too much. I want to focus on the fact that I believe that I can change and grow. And I, I do feel like I see real evidence of that growth. I, I don't know how I would have handled the last year, five years ago, but I don't think it would have been as well. I think the work and the study and the experience uh, and the changes is culminating into becoming better. And I mean, your body is, you know, always generating and regenerating new cells. I don't, I guess I don't, I don't know why it would be true that your your behavior is stuck. I mean, certainly there's lots of evidence of people getting worse, right? <laughs> um, I, I guess I, I want to believe that you can get better. Mm. And And when it comes to things like negative emotions or the way we talk to ourselves, um, are you, I mean, have you sort of come to the to the belief that we can actually take control of that? In one of Seneca's letters, he says, how, he's writing to his friend Lucilius. He says, how do I know that I'm making progress? Yeah. And he says, it's because I've become a better friend to myself. Hmm. So when I think about what I was going through at 25 or what I was thinking about when I was 27, or uh, I, I do find that I was not a good friend to myself. There was a drive, but the drive often manifested itself in intense pressure and self-scrutiny, um, an inability to be present because I was focused on all the things that were going wrong or all the things that I had to do or, you know, what I was trying to do. Mm. You know, the first marathon you run, you wonder if you have what it takes. As you do subsequent ones, it's much more about how you're going to do it. And so, yeah, when I think back to past experiences or moments or stressful situations or books, there was that theme of not being a particularly good friend to myself because I was judging myself or putting mm. totally unrealistic pressure on myself or internalizing things from other people or outside expectations. And uh, I don't have to do that. So wh why, why not try to change it? I love that idea so much that you can measure progress by how much of a better friend you are to yourself. I think that's actually a really great measure of, of how you're doing. Because friends do want and expect the best out of you, but right. they also understand and love you and, you know, help you get back up when you fail. Right. So I think, you know, being a friend to yourself doesn't just mean cheering yourself on and accepting you know, everything, right? There's a, an accountability to friendship too. So I think when I think about being a good friend to yourself, it's not, oh, you don't feel like working today. Don't feel like, you know, don't work. It's, it's something more profound than that. That's Ryan Holiday. He's a writer and author of the book, The Obstacle is the Way. He owns and operates an independent bookstore in Bastrop County, Texas called The Painted Porch Bookshop, where you can find many of Ryan's favorite books.
Thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. 